Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host. James Fox alongside us. Boy, did he work hard. Give him a pat on the back figuratively. Don't follow him around and do it literally because that's kind of weird. But James, you deserve it. All the figurative pats on the back because you worked pretty hard this draft season. Uh, we, we talked to a couple guests and we were going to talk to Joe Doyle, or at least relive some of the conversation we had with Joe Doyle of Prospects Live, as well as Burke Granger of 2080 Baseball. We also have some audio from Mike Shirley, the White Sox amateur scouting director, as this is the second draft under his belt at the helm. And it's the first full draft in what we can expect moving forward is the, the norm 20 round draft. And uh, boy, are we, we're excited. Are we excited? Cause I'm excited. I think you're excited too. Yeah. I think people should be, I think going, you know, back to back prep picks for the first time in a while. I mean, they haven't done it since 2012. That was Courtney Hawkins and Cam Barnum. It didn't work out so well. Um, but I think the shifting strategy is almost more important than the players that they took. If that makes any sense, right? Like we kind of have to trust these guys on Colson Montgomery and, and West Calf. I just wanted them to go with back-to-back preps, and I preferred back-to-back back-to-back prep bats. And they actually did it. And uh, yeah, it's like a, a bit of a changing of the guard, even though you know they've been kind of like angling this way of late in recent drafts. But they they kind of went all in this time, and uh, it's it's something that's good to see. Yeah, I'm glad you referenced just the strategy, draft philosophy moving forward. I think that's a topic we can get into a little bit later down on the road because when you think about going into the draft, and you nailed it, you know, you've been saying it out loud for a long time leading up to the draft this year, is you preferred two prep bats in the first two picks. And then we got it in Colson Montgomery and West Cath. We're going to hear from Mike Shirley his perspective on the picks, the players. Uh, and we're going to hear some reinforced uh, scouting opinions from Joe Doyle and Brooke Ranger here in a little bit. But man, the drafting philosophy, because not only did they select Montgomery and Kath, the first two picks, and that's the highlight too. They also picked a lot of pitching, 12 pitchers, 11 being college, but four prep players, two that like later on in the draft that we could detail a little bit more, Tanner McDouble and Cameron Butler. I think those are highlight picks too, as well. But just elaborate, James, on the draft philosophy of committing to prep players dating back to 2019 and the value that is in stocking your farm system with players out of high school. So, I mean, it's it's kind of the currency of the game right now. Like for anybody that's paid attention to the trades that were made, you know, the big Cubs, you Darvish trade, and there were some other ones too. It's like these these teams have targeted prep talent or teenage talent, right? And you can get it from the international market or you know, from the high school ranks in the amateur draft. And it's just something that the White Sox didn't do that often during this rebuild. I mean, they, they put a heavy emphasis on college players and anybody that's watching the big league team, that's uh, paid off a little bit um, with some of these guys in the big leagues already. But as they're transitioning to a winning club, it is important to have a lot of like prep players in your system and to get younger, you know, just so you have like a second and third wave of talent, but also so you have guys to trade to get stuff that the big league team needs. So you know, Mike Shirley had a lot to do with the the strategical shift in 2019 when they went with Matthew Thompson for $2 million, Andrew Dahlquist for, for similar money in round three, and then they took James Beard uh, out of a small high school in Mississippi in round four, and they, they backed that up with like five more prep talents on day three. You know, Nick Hostetler was still the scouting director for that draft, but, you know, Shirley had his fingerprints all over it and the changing strategy. And then in 2020... You know, there's a lot of talk about Jared Kelly and Mick Abel and some of these prep guys and, you know, some of the bats too. And I kind of thought they might go prep in the first round in the short draft last year, but they went with Garrett Crochet. But then they did take the basically the rest of their bonus pool money and gave $3 million to Jared Kelly, who's, you know, off to a bit of a rough start, but he's still one of the better prospects in the system. So, like, they, they've they changed quite a bit um, adding prep players and I know we have some cuts from Shirley that we'll get to where he where he talks about that and elaborates further but you know it's a it's a good thing to see like getting younger overall in the farm system is a better thing on multiple levels that's great no I agree I think it's the currency of the game is a very very important point of this and I think there's room to grow and there's breakout potential in a lot of the prep players um, not only in the White Sox system but you see it across Major League Baseball that's that's where the value is a lot and it's going to cost you a little bit. And Mike Shirley admitted him, himself in a conference call on day three that they expect to 
spend over slot value on West Calf if it's not already done uh, to this point, in w- which we're recording the podcast. So like, it's something to keep in mind. But also, like the philosophy behind it, you want to try and keep these guys away from signing to their school scholarships, you know, and you know, join our organization. We believe in you for a reason. We picked you for a reason, and we want you to stay. So I mean, there's a lot of it that you know, that can go into selecting a prep player. But here's something that I would like to begin with as we continue on with the Colson Montgomery West Cath dynamic. I mean, you look like the last three years, we're hitting it hard because it is, like James said, the changing of the guard. And Mike Shirley is now 25 picks in plus some non-drafted roster invites as well. But 25 draft picks in, and you're highlighted by Garrett Crochet, Jared Kelly, Bailey Horn, the fifth round pick who is, you know, moved up to Winston Salem this year after beginning in Loy Canapolis. Positive de- developments, I think, across the board there. But then you look at 2020, the Jared Kelly pick highlights the strategy, I think, in the emphasizing of drafting and scouting prep players. And this particular prep player that they took, number one overall. Colson Montgomery is 19 and a half as a senior in high school. And we heard from Joe Doyle. He mentioned this. Burke Granger also talked about this. Don't have the cut from Burke. But the 19 and a half years old, is that an issue, James, for organizations? Because typically, I mean, what they're saying is Colson Montgomery might have been a top 10 pick if he was 18 and not 19 and a half. Yeah, it sounds a little bit crazy, right? And if if he went to Indiana and he was a college player and he was really good, Two years from now, some teams wouldn't care how old he is, and they just take him anyway. Some of the same teams. It's it's pretty weird. So like I, you know, people have asked me like, what teams are like that? We don't really need to get into that here. I mean, anybody that watched the ESPN broadcast of the draft, Kylie McDaniel was really good about this, and he was emphatic. I mean, he had, I think he had Montgomery as a top twenty player. He talked about how the White Sox obviously liked him too. They like the left-handed power potential. They think he's going to stay at shortstop. Kylie kind of agreed, but there are some teams like you know, model-based teams who, you know, they, they put the data into a computer no matter how good he is, and it says 19 and a half high school, and then it's an automatic no, so you can't draft that player. So, you know, under Jerry Reinsdorf, the White Sox will always be a scouting team. They have, you know, boots-on-the-ground scouts. Um, so, you know, we'll see if it pays off for them this time. But, look, there are a lot of people who who like Colson Montgomery quite a bit, and they think that he has upside despite being an older high schooler. And, you know, lots of people outside of the organization think that he might be able to stick at shortstop. So, you know, I, I feel like eight weeks ago when the talk was Colson Montgomery at 22, it was kind of seen as like a little bit of a reach and Mike Shirley just loves his Indiana guys. But as we got closer and closer to the draft, you know, it, it kind of seemed like the majority of evaluators and, people who do this like gave them credit for that selection at 22 it's encouraging and to hear scouts say and evaluators from multiple publications suggest that he could stick at shortstop based on his frame 6'4 200 pounds I mean that is something that I'm going to keep an eye on uh, a lot across his development I think you've been echoing this across multiple platforms too you've been socks machine and you've been doing a lot of guest appearances on other outlets talking about the value in sticking at shortstop in his profile uh, bats lefty throws right-handed of course as an infielder I mean that is something that the White Sox are really excited about so defensively hoping he can stick there also we're going to talk a little bit more about Wes Kath the second round pick who eh, played shortstop in high school, but realistically third base, first base profile, mainly third base, I think, to begin his professional career. Um, But I brought that up because I wanted you to listen to Mike Shirley himself describe why he was so enticed by the two players in Montgomery and West Cath across the first two picks. When you think about who these two kids are, and the left-handed potential of two bats that can grow up together, that can you know mix in and, and understand what it's like to be White Sox. Um, those are pieces of puzzle that are hard to find. And you know when you when you want to go find high school players, you want high big upside. Both these guys possess it. When you're looking for hitters, the looseness to the swing, the strike zone management, you know the people they are. How do they? How are they going to react to adversity? You know, both of them come from great families. Both of them have been raised right. They're going to be able to jump over the hurdles. Both possess a high level of maturity that you're willing to invest the type of dollars to secure these kids 
I mean, we they check so many boxes for us in terms of the talent, most importantly, and the makeup and the people they are. And to put them together is something that's it's really, I mean, it's just it's too attractive to pass on. And that's the bet we're willing to make in high school players. You know, when you think about, like, the Andrew Vaughns, the Gavin Sheets, as you scout these guys, you see the maturity and how they handle at bats. You see the presence because they come from great families that nurture this balance in them, that they understand how to handle stress levels. That's the type of type things that we see in these kids, in, you know, in Colson and Westcath. Something that I found interesting in that response, James, is the way Mike Shirley valued just the mental philosophy of being a professional baseball player, understanding the stresses and how to overcome failure. I mean, he really emphasized a strong family bond, right? Like the the upbringing, uh, the right head on your shoulders. I mean, that was the highlight for me in describing that. Yeah, the bat and like the tools. Like the, it's clear that he believes in the player itself and what he brings to the table. There's projectability there, of course. But man, like the mental makeup of being a professional baseball player, I think that's sort of overlooked. And I mean, he was really emphasizing that point to me, at least. So I think I remember from the, you know, from the conference call, I think it was Lamont Pope that asked him just like, you know, what he kind of thought about Colson Montgomery's father, you know, and like their emotions and, and stuff like that, you know, and Mike Shirley talked about the time and the investment that's put in. And he basically said that the best part of the job is watching these kids dreams come true. So, you know, he's been a scout for a long time and he sees a lot of it. So, you know, that it was good to hear, you know, Shirley kind of bring it back to that. But the other thing that, you know, I found interesting, you know, is like, look, he is going to Chicago in the third largest market and, you know, it, it is the White Sox, but, you know, he's a downstate Indiana kid and he's a three sport athlete. He played quarterback in high school. He's a really good basketball player that for a long time kind of thought he was going to be a D1 basketball player. Um, for a while, it looked like he was going to go to IU and play basketball and baseball. You know, he had a baseball scholarship that he will turn down to sign with the White Sox. But, you know, there was some talk that he might walk on there. I mean, they kind of asked him about being a professional and how that would be for this kid. And Mike Shirley right away, you know, kind of asked like if the people on the call understood like high school basketball in Indiana and that whole thing. And obviously we don't live there. I think we, you know, we understand that it's, it's very popular there, but you know, he said Colson Montgomery is a star and carries a lot of weight and a lot of responsibility and everybody knows who he is. And look, I mean, Chicago is much different than downstate Indiana, but it's not like the kid has never been in the spotlight before. And he did a lot of the pre-draft events and, stuff like that. So, you know, I actually think going out and playing on backfields and in Arizona might actually be easier for him than, than what he's been doing. It's going to be interesting to see the development of this player. I mean, there's a lot behind it. You heard Mike Shirley in the call. You talk about when he congratulated Colson Montgomery on being selected by the White Sox. He said it. I mean, this was posted on social media. He said, we project you to be a shortstop in this organization. And that's how they were going to develop him unless, you know, things turn otherwise. So, I mean, that's something to keep an eye on. And we have a clip from Joe Doyle just talking about the projection of Colson Montgomery. And this is from Doyle of Prospects Live. We interviewed him a couple of weeks prior to the draft, but his explanation, his perspective of Colson Montgomery, the projectability he has at shortstop, as well as a couple of other things that we found interesting. So let's take a listen here, especially as it relates to the age. Like we discussed the age of being 19 years old, 19 and a half, and how that impacted the scouting and development process. Here's the thing about Colson. If, if he was 18 and a half and not 19 and a half, I think you're talking about a guy that is a top 10 pick and he's rivaling Brady House, you know, who's going to go first. It, the, the issue that a lot of model teams have is is the age and he's an older high school player. Um, and that's that's always going to be a knock against old school teams. Um, he has a ton of advocates all over the place and him going to the MLB draft combine and posting one of the best agility scores for a six foot four shortstop really kind of calms some of the nerves of people saying, well, is this guy going to have to move to third base? The guy is quick on his feet and he's got a big bat. And I think that plays. I will say I, I would have a hard time seeing him get by Rick Hahn and, and the White Sox. That that seems like a match made in heaven right now. He's just starting to get his swing controlled and stay connected all the way through the ball. I mean, it just, he really didn't pop uh, with the bat until October when it all started to click for him. So 
I think there's a lot more projection left on Colson Montgomery. And for me, you'd be really hard pressed to find better clay. I thought it was really exciting to hear Doyle talk about there's more growth in Colson Montgomery's bat. I mean, when you talked about it before the cut too, James, I think it's really important to mention the multi-sport athlete in high school. I love that about him. Just the athleticism to play multiple sports as well. The coordination obviously is there if he's a star shortstop uh, among his age group. I, I think there's so much to the Colson Montgomery profile that lends itself to say, man, the White Sox may have gotten a steal there. And just going back to the early conversations that we had, if he was a year younger, this guy could have been a top 10 pick, and the White Sox got him at 22. And then they followed it up with Wes Kath, who we're going to detail a little bit further, at pick uh, 57. Uh, and, you know, he, what, ranked above that, too? I mean, that was, I, I, I just, the more I look at it, the more I hear from professionals and scouts and those who uh, were close to this scouting and development process, I, I just, I can't help but get really optimistic about this player. Yeah, I mean, I think getting both players was was really awesome. And I think, you know, we, we talk about how we just have to, like, trust the scouting in this instance, and I kind of wanted them to do two high school bats. But, I mean, it's two left side of the infield bats that hit left-handed that both have projection left. You know, he talked about the looseness to both of their swings. They both managed the strike zone well. You know, he surely talked about how, how good of people they are, which, you know, doesn't really matter that much to us, right? But you know, how they react to adversity, both come from great families, he said, with a high level of maturity, which makes the White Sox willing to invest dollars into them. I mean, basically saying like, you know, these are high school players that are going to be willing to put in the work and like do the work that it's going to take to improve, right? Both of these guys could have gone on to Indiana and Arizona State and been first round picks two years from now. Colson Montgomery could have been a top 10 pick two years from now if he goes to Indiana and, and tears up the Big Ten. So, you know, that's the that's the risk you take, taking high school players. They could flame out and never make it to double A, or, you know, they could be what the White Sox think they are, and they, they turn into high-level trade assets for you later, or they turn into pieces of your next core. So, But I just think getting two left-handed bats with power potential like this um, is interesting, and it's a real jolt to a farm system that's, you know, not – ranked at the the top of these lists anymore currently yeah where it once was and hey shout out Luis robert coming back hopefully soon making rehab stints hopefully julie brady can get some experience watching Luis robert again blast from the past back when she covered the dash and Luis robert was tearing it up how about that historic run by the way i I think she'll be i think she'll be covering the dash a lot more like she'll be I hope so. Julie will be coming out of the woodwork <laughs> to go to Dash games and issuing her her law school responsibilities to see <laughs> Luis Robert hit dingers and it's Winston worth it. Salem. Yeah. Man, that stretch run when he started at Winston Salem and just so clearly was better yeah. than everybody. Yeah. That was crazy. Why do you have to move to Birmingham? Well when you have a two seventy uh, weighted runs created plus like in high A, like you have to move to Birmingham. So yeah, his OPS was like near two. It was nuts. It was 2000. It was crazy. Anyway, so let's let's dive more into Colson Montgomery before we move on to West Cath. It's the last cut that we're going to provide you on Colson Montgomery. And this is from Burke Granger. We talked about whether or not he could stick at shortstop with that frame. Burke saw him in person when he was 18 years old at a national tournament. And he kind of described what he saw in the defensive shortstop. So let's take a listen. A guy like Colson Montgomery at 22, I don't think is going to be significantly overslot. Um, you know, I haven't seen him in a year at PG National, but when I saw him, I, re- I really liked what I saw. I-, I thought he was a smooth defender at shortstop. He's kind of atypical in terms of his build for a shortstop. You know, he's tall and lengthy, uh, but I comped him to a guy like Connor Kaiser, if you're, if you're familiar with him, uh, the old Vanderbilt shortstop who was really good there. And I, I see, I see a lot of. Uh, references that he'll need he'll grow out of second base and or grow out of shortstop and will need to slide over to third and he's got enough arm I think to do that uh, but I like I liked what he brought to the at the plate as well he's got a like kind of a whippy left-handed swing uh, there's some pretty good juice especially to the pull side and then in some of those games that I saw at PG National where he's you know he's facing other premier high school competition from around the country. He, he had, I like the approach at the plate is he, he was able to spit on off speed stuff out of the zone. And then he, he took 90 the other way, flipped it for a, a line drive single. So I always respect the firsthand opinion of somebody who obviously 
been there, saw a player, and he described him in action. And I think, you know, we can reinforce the idea that his feet are, are good enough to stick at shortstop. Like, we're trying to convince ourselves without having any firsthand insight outside of who we're speaking with and, and listening to in terms of experts. Like, we want to see these players firsthand. And that's what I think Future Sox has built its credibility on. There's a lot of our correspondence getting accurate looks at players and this is what i'm looking forward to myself is when we can scout colson montgomery and i'm just trying to convince myself that this is a player who can stick at shortstop if you can tell uh that that's what, what i'm really focused on because the value is really through the roof if that does become the case but i thought what burke was talking about was was very interesting he reinforced the idea that the bat a level swing plane uh he, he handled himself well on the field of course uh in in the at-bats and he said he talked about it at 22 i mean the value there and the white Sox got him so just continuing to promote the idea that this was a great pick for the chicago white Sox, and we were watching the draft james you were on the twitter spaces with Sox machines josh nelson and pick after pick, I mean, there's a couple of teams that we were worried about maybe taking Colson Montgomery. One was the Mets at 10, Kumar Rocker. I mean, how do you not pass on him? And as well as the Cubs. The, and the Cubs went with Jordan Wicks, a left-handed pitcher, and it was just easy money for the White Sox. And that was something that, you know, we were looking at, like you said, like eight weeks prior to the draft, Colson Montgomery was linked to the White Sox and <laughs> the worst kept secret. I mean, it was out there and the White Sox pounced when the opportunity presented itself. So it seemed like that's the right pick. Yeah, I like it. And, you know, you start questioning yourself, at least I did, right? Because it's like not typically the way that the White Sox do business, but it's a, you know, base, the baseball draft weird. Like if the whole world knows that you love Colson Montgomery, it's not like somebody can trade up in front of you and take him. And if somebody in front of you likes him, like they're just going to take him and you're going to have no shot at him anyway. So like, I don't know, I guess I've never, I guess there's some posturing possibly for like bonus pool stuff, right? Like maybe an agent will say like, Oh, well he had interest at 16. So I want to be paid like that, such and such. Maybe that's why, but I mean, it's, it's not football where somebody can like go up and swipe your player. And uh, you know, it sounds like their, their plan went accordingly you know they got Colson on day one we're gonna get into West Cath you know I don't I don't think that they knew that they were gonna get West Cath on day two but I think as soon as he got to day two they uh they found a way to get that done as well well there you go West Cath at 57 in the second round for the Chicago White Sox another left-handed uh, bat right-handed thrower and a shortstop in Arizona projected to be third base first base type Six foot three, 200 pounds. I mean, that's another guy to compliment Montgomery. I mean, last thing on Montgomery, too, as we move on to West Cath, you look at the frame and the body. Like when we saw him on draft day and he went up on stage, you could see he was pretty filled out already. I mean, that's something like as a 19 and a half year old, yeah, you expect a little bit more of an advanced frame if you're talking about. Like, I think Jared Kelly was an anomaly. That guy was built, looked like already a professional baseball player. But Colson Montgomery was like getting there. You know, it, it seems like if he puts on a couple of more, 10 pounds maybe, I mean, that guy, I mean, he's already built. So when we look at West Cath, though, this is a player that we can already expect to be moved away from shortstop and third base, first base profile. Joe Doyle of Prospects Live presented an interesting comp for the West Cath pick and the profile. So let's take a listen and uh, James, I want to get your take on it. West Cath, the White Sox showed a lot of interest in Wes uh, through April and May. They uh, had a big scouting contingency out at his games and they were awfully active at a uh, high school tournament, a tournament of the West Coast, if you will, in February where they were pretty active. Cath is more of a third base, first base, Matt Carpenter type of power profile. If West Cath is there in the second round, I, you know, I think Rick Hahn and the White Sox could jump all over it. Two things that I pulled from that clip, the White Sox were actively scouting West Cath, and Burke and, and Joe, the two guys that we interviewed prior to the draft, both mentioned West Cath linked to the White Sox. So it's not like it wasn't a secret, kind of similar to Colson Montgomery, that the White Sox were interested in this player. So I thought it was fascinating to hear him say that the White Sox actively scouted West Cath, and I wonder if he would have been an option at 22 if Montgomery wasn't on the board. And then the other thing is that he comped him to Matt Carpenter, that type of player, the the pop in his bat at least. So 
that's what I took out of it. I, I think that's an encouraging cop if it is indeed Matt Carpenter you're getting in the second round. Yeah, I think we'll take Matt Carpenter at 57. You know, some of that is he's he's a throwback. He doesn't wear batting gloves, um, so he's, you know, a little bit interesting. So a side note on Wes Kath, I do think he was in the running at 22 if, uh, if Colson wasn't on the board, which is interesting, and they got both, so that's good. But, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Kevin Goldstein of Fangraphs wrote something, and it kind of mentioned, like, the two teams that were – um, the most interested in West Calf were the White Sox and the Rays. And I had joked with people at the time, like, oh, well, then let's just take him then. Because, you know, if the Rays want to take your guy like that, that's a, a player that I'm interested in. So that, you know, that was like the first time where I'm like, ooh, like West Calf is, is interesting if Colson Montgomery is off the board. Um, but, you know, I never really thought it was possible to get both, even though I kind of thought prep prep on the hitting side was the direction to go. I just don't know if anybody thought that West Cath would get to 57, but they successfully did that, you know, on a conference call that uh, Mike Shirley, you know, he called West Cath mature, you know, he says that he has a balance in the delivery of his barrel and you see it in the box. There's not a lot of stress like to the swing and his whole setup. He kind of compared him. He said, when you think of the Andrew Vaughn's and the Gavin sheets of the world, like as you scout these guys, you see the maturity, the maturity and how they handle a bat. And, you know, he kind of considered West Cath to be similar to those guys. He did tell Scott Merkin and some of the beat staff that, you know, he saw Freddie Freeman back in high school and it, and it was similar, you know, like the no batting gloves, the looseness to the swing, some of that stuff. So, like, I don't know that he's going to turn into Freddie Freeman or Carpenter, but it's definitely a worthwhile gamble to take in the second round. Um, I don't know when the deal is going to be announced. He's expected to sign for 1.8 million, which that's like 40th overall pick slot money. So, you know, they are going to go over slot with him to get it done. But I think that was part of their plan, similar to how they've operated in recent years. And speaking of signing, James, do we have a bit of breaking news as we record this podcast related to the first round pick Colson Montgomery? Yeah. Yeah. So Colson Montgomery, you know, I thought this was going to happen yesterday and we're filming Tuesday. We're recording um, Tuesday afternoon, but yeah. So Colson Montgomery signed today or is signing today. He will throw out the first pitch at the White Sox game tonight. Um, anybody watching on TV, I believe his father tweeted that he will be joining Benetti and Stone during the second inning of tonight's All game. Right. So yeah. And then I know that like, a lot of the other, the rest of the draft class or the majority of it, the guys that are signed are in Birmingham currently for some sort of like rookie mini camp. Um, I don't think the team has done that in the past, but you know, I think Birmingham's on the road, so it makes sense. Yeah. And then from there, guys will go to whatever affiliate they're assigned. So, you know, that's a little bit interesting. I don't know if Montgomery will go there or he'll go right to Arizona. My guess is if the team's in Birmingham for a while, he'll go there, then Arizona. But I think I saw somewhere that you know, he's expected in the Arizona Complex League by the end of the month, like July 29th or 30th, I believe. And hopefully we'll get Sean out there and, you know, get some eyes on Colson Montgomery. Yeah, shout out Sean Williams. But that's pretty cool. Hopefully you were able to catch that interview if you were watching the White Sox game and you're listening to this after uh, the announced signing. But yeah, man, it, things are happening. And you're right. Uh, Birmingham's on the road for, I think, the rest of the month of July, maybe last couple of days of July, they'll return. So interesting note to keep in mind that these players are going to report and work out in a very hot and steamy Birmingham, Alabama, uh, White Sox AA complex facility. So that'll be cool. Um, but back to Wes Kath. Let's get one more take on Kath in an evaluation from Burke Ranger on 2080 baseball. And he again saw Wes Kath in person, similar to how he did Coles Montgomery. I like Kath quite a bit. He was at PG national as well. He's a little more filled out than than Montgomery and Muncie, for that matter. He's he's a bat first shortstop. He he might need to move out the position uh, sooner rather than later. I, I think he's got good first step quickness, uh, but maybe not the speed that you're looking for in a shortstop. He's got plenty of arm for third base if he moves over there. So he was pretty solid over the summer, and then he really turned it on during the spring and started to rise up draft boards. He's He's got a level swing plane, but he showed the ability to, to backspin the baseball. He uses the uses the whole field, doesn't swing and miss a ton. So the, the value for a guy like Kath is in the bat. He's not going to kill you on defense, uh, but I actually think he could be pretty good at a corner infield spot. So Burke did sort of say a lot of the similar things along the lines of Joe Doyle, Prospects Live. Burke of 2080 Baseball interviewed him a few days before the draft. He talked about 
the value in Westcath going to all fields in his bat. And he also reinforced the idea that, hey, don't expect him to stick at shortstop. I think we're already like past that idea and we're committed to him being hopefully a third base mainstay. And we'll see how that translates as a professional. But again, a, a power bat, a ball that jumps off the barrel, and you reference what Mike Shirley had to say about Westcath. The first two picks of this 2021 draft, one, it's new for the White Sox over the last 10 seasons, but also it's a matter of, I think it signifies the commitment to Mike Shirley's philosophy and that if these players that we're scouting in their high school prep available, we're going to go get them, even if we have to pay overslide, which is going to happen to West Cath. Um, and we're seeing also, too, a couple of other high school players in Tanner McDougall and Cameron Butler who are likely going to get overslide uh, value here. Uh, as we continue this discussion, we'll, we'll get into that. But I think just going back to uh, the philosophy behind it and then also the significance of committing to high school prep players in the first two rounds, I mean, that is just incredibly encouraging. I love the profile and especially the just the the body of West Cath. I think it projects to be a big power bat for the Chicago White Sox. I think so. And, you know, Shirley said he was very, he said, when you talk about who these kids are and the left-handed potential of two bats that can grow together and understand what it's like to be White Sox, like, you know, those are the pieces of the puzzle that are hard to find. And when you want to find high school players, you want big upside. And they, the White Sox feel like both of these guys possess that. So, um, you know, he said putting them together was too attractive to pass on. And it's a bet that they're willing to make on high school players. So, you know, if that's true, then, uh, you know, maybe this is something that we see, into the future, I think, you know, looking at mock drafts the past few years that we've been doing this, I think a lot of people kind of just default and look myself, you know, I was getting itchy as you could attest, you know, like the week before I'm like, ah, they're going to, they're going to do college pitching. They're going to take a college player. Like as much as I heard prep prep, like I just, I just didn't believe it because they hadn't done it and it's easy to fall on history. So, you know, maybe that's changing a little bit and now people will be like, oh yeah, the White Sox, they always take prep players in the first round. <laughs> Yeah, you were all over it, man. I, like I said, you're, you're, you wanted those first two picks to be prep position players, and the White Sox had it. I mean, there were some enticing pitchers on the board in the first round and even in the second round, college-type names that were available, and they passed on it. So, you know, we'll, we'll continue to monitor this development in draft philosophy, but across the first 25 picks, I think uh, we're encouraged to see the way Shirley is approaching his draft. And let's continue to diagnose, or I should say di dissect, the 20-round draft class of 2021, James. There's two prep players that we mentioned that we wanted to highlight. There's a couple other players that I wanted to throw your way as well to get your evaluations on, too. But first, let's begin with Tanner McDougal, high school senior right-handed pitcher out of Silverado High School in Nevada. 6'5", 185, and here's what Mike Shirley had to say about this particular player, and let me know if anything jumps out at you when you hear this cut. Tanner McDougal is a high upside right-handed starter who has elite metrics. So you talk about the, his breaking ball has 3,000 spin to it. It's this elite weapon that is, you know, in the game, in the modern day game, it, you know, his, the science, science behind the game says he has a weapon that is unique. On top of the fact it's athletic, it's six foot five, it's a starter. Uh, we saw him at the draft combine. It kind of like he jumped out at us again, and just how easy he gets his velocity, how many strikes he throws. There, are, there are parameters we think can get better, and so we thought we bought a big time front line possible starter, and we paid for it in the fifth round. He didn't get the normal slot money. We invested money in him, and uh, he's in a piece of the puzzle that's very exciting for us. All right, James, he said 3,000 RPMs. Doesn't really happen very often. He did. He called it, you know, 3,000 3, spin and elite metrics and called it an elite weapon, you know, that the science of the modern game says is unique. So, you know, it's not just the breaking ball, you know, and the breaking ball is like a slurvy, you know, like I've seen it described as a slider or a curveball, but we'll go with a slurve. But, you know, the I think he's already mid-90s with the fastball. He's six foot five. Um, they They think he's a starter, you know, they saw him multiple times and then, you know, their looks were reaffirmed, I guess, by what they saw at the draft combine. So, yeah, I mean, this is the other thing that was really interesting, I think, is that Mike Shirley, like right out in the open, um, basically admitted that they're going over slot. I mean, 
look, it shouldn't be a secret, but teams are very secretive with stuff like this. I mean, I think um, he's getting like around $850,000 to not go to Oregon. That's like 500 K over slot in the fifth round. Um, They, they're uh, you know, they're pretty excited. I think we can throw this into the pile with, Jared Kelly and Andrew Dahlquist and Matthew Thompson and some of these younger prep starters that they have, I think he he joins the mix of those type of guys. So this is uh this is an interesting one. This is a nice gamble to take in round five, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, high school right-handed pitcher with that kind of stuff, sign me up. You know, there's risk there, of course, but when you have the repertoire that suggest analytically at least jump off the page at you you want to see it translate in games the command location consistency and delivery mechanics and all that stuff you know developing as a professional all that is that comes with that I, I just when you look at it on the surface like you said you're going over slot in the second round but man if you're lumping them together with Matthew Thompson and Andrew Dahlquist like in terms of the types of players that we can monitor with high upside as a pitcher let's do it uh, I love it that's very exciting. Cameron Butler now. This is somebody that in day three, you, know, you talk about overslot in the second round. There's a little different, uh, there's a different approach to the day three overslot values, right, James? Like it's not as dramatic in terms of the money invested as a player if you're signing them overslot because there's a cap to it, right? Am I am I right there? Yeah. So anybody on day three, 120, you can go to 125K without it counting against your bonus pool. So the overage counts. So I mean, the, it, the, the, the rumor is that Cameron Butler signing for $150,000, which seems light, but you know, that's what it seems like. So that means 25K would count against your bonus pool. The reason for doing it in round 15 as compared to like round five or six, um, you know, if you took him in round six and you paid him 150, the entire 150 counts against your bonus pool. Whereas if you take him in round 15, only 25,000 does. So, you know, that that's the reason like a lot of teams have shifted towards taking seniors and guys without a ton of leverage in rounds like five through 10. And then they take some more chances in 11 through 20. So if you were to stack the draft class, like in order of bonus amount, oftentimes guys selected on day three will earn more in a bonus than guys selected on day two. Well, there you go. Hopefully you learned something because I sure did. High school senior, Big Valley Christian High School out of California, Cameron Butler, six foot 175 listed on the White Sox profile page. Let's take a listen to Mike Shirley, White Sox amateur scouting director, in his evaluation and why he liked Cameron Butler and why they took a chance on him. Not a pop-up guy for us. Adam Burchis, our area scout, has done a tremendous job. We've known about this kid since Jump Street. And due to the relationship with Adam, we were able to secure this player. We're very excited to have him. You know, I, there are a lot of people who think he might possess five tools someday. So um, they like where he's at presently, and they think the ceiling is significant. We had several people scout him. We had several supervisors scout him. There's tremendous upside here. There are five tools here. There's a lot of excitement about this player. So we were lucky. A couple things, James. first one that I want to throw your way is that the White Sox were in on this player for a while. The area scout was high on Cameron Butler, and there's five-tool projectability, according to Mike Shirley. So, hey, I mean – Take it. (laughs) 15th round, day three. Give me that. Uh, I know there's a couple other things that is really enticing, too, about the player, but your perspective of the pick, James. Yeah, so I was interested. I mean, I'm always interested in day three whenever you take a prep guy because, like, back in the day, it used to be like, oh, this is just, like, they're taking him to build a relationship to sign, like, three years from now when he's in college. But now that's not always the case, and it's obviously not the case with this player. Like, they're going to sign him. He let off the cut the way that he did because the way I asked the question, you know, I you know, there were a lot of outlets who, you know, kind of heard about Cam Butler late, and they considered him like a pop-up prospect, right? Like, he's one of the hotter prospects in the area of California. He was being talked about a lot closer to the draft, and he was a guy that wasn't that well-known, so he's considered a pop-up prospect. Baseball America ranked him 210 overall in their top 500, which is pretty significant. So Shirley pushed back on that, said Adam Virtus, the area scout that's responsible for uh, Marcus Simeon and Andrew Vaughn, among others, um, is the guy that, you know, was all over Butler. And he's, you know, he's deciding to not go to Cal Poly. He's going to be in the White Sox system and he'll be, you know, in Arizona soon enough. And it's just another guy that we'll, you know, hopefully get a look at and get you some more information on. Yeah, it's exciting. Again, righty-righty profile, outfielder in the 15th round. That'll do it for the four 
high school picks that the White Sox decided to take in the 20-round draft in 2021. Uh, Montgomery and Kath won two, Tanner McDougal in the fifth round, and Cameron Butler in the 15th round. I mean, look, 12 players, or excuse me, 12 pitchers drafted, 11 of them being college. Is there something there, James? Is that typical that you see in a Major League Baseball draft? I know it's different 20 to 40 rounds, but I guess now this is where we're at. But is this something that you expected? Uh, I did expect it. Like once they went prep prep, I thought that they'd be able to find some pitching later. Um, That's generally that, you know, they've had a lot of success um, doing it late. I mean, Jonathan Stever obviously hasn't completely lived up to expectations yet, but he was rushed a bit. I mean, that's a fifth round pick. Jimmy Lambert was a fifth round pick. Cody Hoyer is helping the big league club. Um, that's a that's a sixth rounder. Aaron Bummer went in the 19th. Matt Foster went in the 20th. So, I mean, like, look, the White Sox have found college pitching. So that's why you take the prep players early and you do college pitching late. The first of those guys, Sean Burke, right-handed pitcher out of Maryland. Um, I believe he was number either number 53 or number 54 on the Baseball America Top 500. So, I mean, this is a guy um, that's, that's pretty interesting. I mean, a lot of people thought he was maybe a top 50 guy coming into the season. He struggled a little bit at... Maryland, but the stuff's really good. Um, it's a fastball, breaking ball guy. You know, he can get it into the high 90s. He's a big six foot six, like 230 pound righty. Um, you know, just add him to the, you know, stable of pitching in the system. This is a guy that they really liked. They're going to have to develop a third pitch, obviously, with him, but, you know, that's, that's definitely worth it at pick 94 overall. Um, Sean Burke's a guy that, I had my eye on there, and then that was the the guy that they actually chose. Yeah, Burke is interesting, and I like you mentioned six six two thirty out of Maryland. I mean, that's you know right handed power pitcher, somebody you know that we can keep an eye on. But I think it's exciting that he's as advanced as he is across you know his time at Maryland, coming out as a junior. How about this though, James? I mean, surely in the conference call mentioned the value in drafting a number of Power Five conference players and how that impacts, you know, just the the development of those around those types of players. Like I'm talking the younger players that were drafted, maybe junior college players. If you mix them with a bunch of power five conference guys, you understand, or at least you get the taste according to Shirley of the philosophy of what it takes to be a professional player, because those players have lived the stresses, high leverage situations played in front of, you know, big names, tough teams, top competition, all of that, I guess, according to Shirley, is valuable and is in play here when scouting Power 5 conference players. So he said that they did a great job attacking Power 5 conferences. He said guys who come from programs that do a lot of the development already for you. You know, and then he mentioned some of the guys. Like, you know, Johnny Ray is a right-handed pitcher from TCU that they took in round 12. You know, he, he throws really hard, but he gave up 11 homers, like, off of his fastball this year. The stuff was really... Um, just like straight and not very good, but he throws very hard. So, you know, that's a chance they took on a Quincy, Illinois kid there. Um, you know, there's a whole Terrell Tatum's an outfielder of NC state, Jason Gonzalez, third baseman Vanderbilt, Adam Hackenberg is a catcher from Clemson, Sean Goosenberg, shortstop Northwestern. I mean, those are all day three guys. And then Taylor Broadway is interesting as he was old miss closer, but he's just a little bit older. He's like 24 years old. Gil Luna is a little lefty reliever out of Arizona. Who's been really tough on left-handers. So, you know, they took a lot of guys from power five schools, TCU Northwestern represented Clemson Vandy. Like I said, you know, one of the things, one of the interesting things that Shirley said, you know, he said, these guys come with the grit, the grind and the makeup to get in your system. They balance it out. They make a difference for you. So he said, when you think about taking guys like Colson Montgomery and West Cath, you want to put pieces around those guys, help them stabilize their peer groups and find out what it takes to be championship type players. Right. And that's why they target the power five kids because they make everybody better. And look, I mean, if, Jason Gonzalez was the the nine hitter at Vandy this year and he hit nine bombs and he's going to hit a bunch of bombs in the White Sox system. He's had trouble with breaking balls. You know, he might not ever be a major league contributor for you, but if Jason Gonzalez is the type that comes into your system and West Cath is better because he was on his team, then those are definitely worthwhile picks to get into your system. Guys on the college side like that. I think it's fascinating uh, when you when you mention the philosophy side of Mike Shirley's approach because I think again the mental aspect of a player I, I said it was often overlooked but I 
you know, earlier in this episode, I just don't think it's taken into account enough. And I think it's hard to quantify that because it's not tangible, you know? So um, here's something too, that I wanted to throw your way is Mike Shirley's evaluation of scouting, uh, the challenges of scouting across the 2020 and 2021 draft classes, just because of COVID and the impacts that has um, across his scouting and development teams and just the challenges that uh, were put in place just to scout specific players. This was the highest draft inventory since 1965. So we dealt with more players in this draft than we have in a long time. It's been a lot of work. You know, since the draft last year ended, it's been a nonstop grind to get through this. And the staff has done a tremendous job working through that piece of the puzzle. We've worked as hard this year as we ever have because the inventory required that. So I can't believe we got through it based off COVID, um, based off the start and stop. I mean, I don't know if everyone understands the challenge it was to scout players this year. You had to sign up to enter college campuses. You had to be in the protocols. There were so many hoops the scout had to jump in day in and day out to even get on campus, to even evaluate players. Games were canceled on us. I, it is one of the tougher challenges we've ever taken on, just based off the pandemic and what we were doing, dealing with as a society. So, James, I thought that was interesting and something that also caught my attention in that conference call. And I guess this does have a lot to do with the cut that we just heard, just the variables that come into play when scouting players. There was a player in the 11th round, Christian Edwards, out of Jacksonville State in Alabama, four-year senior, under-the-radar signing. And I know you asked Shirley about him. What caught your eye about Edwards? Why do you think he's intriguing? And and what did uh, Mike Shirley say about him? So the numbers were pretty good, you know, that I noticed initially. And, I, you know, I always perk up at 11th round picks because it's like the first round in the the non-bonus pool round, right, where you can, like, take a player. He was out of Jacksonville State. So one of the reasons why I asked Shirley about him is because he placed a pretty heavy emphasis on talking about the Power 5 guys. And Christian Edwards is a Jacksonville State kid. So, you know, that was, like, the first reason. And I just wanted a scouting report. He said that they went in to see a matchup against Trey Sweeney. Trey Sweeney was a the shortstop from Eastern Illinois. He went 20th overall to the Yankees um, as a kid from Eastern Illinois. And they said that, you know, Edward's stuff was so loud that day. It was 94 to 98 breaking ball offered a lot of damage. So, you know, they thought he had good spin. They think it's a plus athlete. They think it's starter materials. I think they said, but he also possesses big velocity. So, you know, he's just really athletic with pretty big time stuff. They thought, you know, they like the kid, they like the makeup. So, you know, I think it's a starting pitching prospect in your system where if things don't work out. It's a really easy transition to relief. Um, I do think he, I think he had another year technically if he wanted at Jacksonville state, but I think he's 22. So all indications are that he's going to sign. I believe it's probably 125 K and look, I don't know how many innings he has left, but you know, he's one of the more interesting of the guys selected on day three. And one last thing I wanted to throw your way before we wrap up the episode here is the approach to drafting catchers at least this year, Sox took two of them. And of course, you know, there's questions across this, the White Sox farm system about catching stability, the depth there. Did the White Sox add value in the catchers that they drafted? There were two catchers, like I mentioned, Colby Smelly in the 13th round, as well as Adam Hackenberg out of Clemson in the 18th round. So, you know, Shirley did mention that there was a lot of catching discussion in the room. So they were, you know, they talked about how they're excited to get both players. Now, I will say Colby Smelly has not committed to signing, at least publicly. I haven't seen anybody report it. There was uh, an article out of a paper in Louisiana just kind of saying that he hasn't decided yet. He does have a scholarship offer to Louisiana Lafayette. Um, but Shirley called him a junior college kid with tremendous upside. He said, you know, he kind of mentioned COVID and said that you get to land that kid because of COVID because of junior college kids being there a year longer than they should have. Um, he was actually able to be drafted this year, which I, you know, which I kind of found interesting. So he was, he was at uh Shelton state. And then the other guy, Adam Hackenberg was from Clemson. He was pretty well known. They said that they'd been scouting Hackenberg for a long time. He thinks, surely thinks it's a plus defensive profile and the baddest flash. I do know Hackenberg has been hurt like a ton. I don't know what the injuries are specifically, but he's been hurt a lot, but apparently he's back healthy now and the bats coming back together. So, you know, surely called it a strong, durable body. 
and you know been a big follow for them since high school and note on adam hackenberg he is the younger brother of former penn state quarterback christian hackenberg so you know it's interesting just because it's a you know it's a name that that people might know he's not super old i feel like he's 21 or just turned 21 so like i got some questions about him from people just kind of like oh is he gonna sign because he could go back to clemson if he wants but it seems like he'll take the 125k and start his professional career and look i mean that's a that might be a guy that you want catching your your young pitching in in arizona or even like in canapolis if the defensive profile holds up that you know they're expecting yeah, that's a good point on Hackenberg, as especially a Power Five guy in Clemson. He's caught some pretty talented pitchers, right, in the ACC. So you know that that's a good point. I, I that perspective, I think, makes the draft pick worth it if they get that defensive value and, and pitch calling and, and catching these um, young pitchers. I think that's a great point. Anything else that and shout out Christian Hackenberg, Memphis uh, Express AAF. Yeah, good, yeah, I think times. so. Second round pick of the Jets, so he got some real money back in yeah. the day. Yeah, I guess you know the one guy that we didn't really talk about, Brooks Goswine or Goswine. He's a left-handed pitcher from Bradley, local, local guy. Um, really good stuff. It's a lefty that gets into the high nineties with a with a good breaking ball, but the numbers weren't very good. So it's always pretty interesting when like you know a guy has a a five ERA and he's pitching at Bradley, like you would think that a guy with his stuff would be able to dominate. So, you know, I'm, I, it, that's going to be under slot, but it's still going to be real money. I think probably a hundred K or so. So he, he's a guy to watch. I mean, he, he's not a, you know, he's a top five round guy that actually like is probably, you know, like a top six or seven round guy, but that wasn't just like a money saver in that spot. They, they like him. There's some video of him. Like my guess is, left-handed relief profile at some point, but they'll let him start initially, obviously, because that's kind of one of the things that the White Sox do is they send these guys out as starters and then they kind of go from there. But he's he's a little bit interesting too. All right, James, great stuff. Thanks so much for all your hard work and the coverage. And thanks so much to all those who contributed to Future Sox outside of our own website. We had a lot of contributors who we hope to have conversations with on the podcast moving forward, but awesome stuff. We're going to talk, by the way, here's a little tease for you, so keep an eye on this if you haven't listened to it already and you're you know, looking forward to the next episode. We have Jim Callis of NLB Pipeline. He's going to join the Future Sox podcast soon, and he is going to detail the White Sox farm system, the draft picks, what they have currently, and all the good stuff from the best, the best in the business who scouts prospects across the whole landscape of minor league baseball. So keep an eye on that. Thanks so much again for listening to this episode of the 2021 Major League Baseball Amateur Draft Recap Show. Huge shout out to James Fox yet again. And uh, we're going we're gonna to talk some more very soon. So thanks for all your support. Check us out on futuresocks.com for everything and go to anchor.fm forward slash futuresocks for the podcast library. Until next time, for James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for listening.